The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, they're having it off bots and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik here to announce show number 205 with guests Venkat Subramanahim and Andy Hunt, recorded live Thursday, October 26, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now the main zero Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Richard and I are here as we are every week. Hi, Richard Campbell. Here I am in the cold. Don't expect the West Coast to be cold, but it's cold here right now. This is, of course, Carl Franklin coming at you from not-so-sunny New London, Connecticut, halfway between Boston and New York on the coast. Suspiciously winter-like, isn't it? Yeah, but man, it was warm last month. Man, it was when all of a sudden, boom, we got nailed with this Arctic blast. It must be the same storm that came through Canada. <laughs> Dumped all, all that snow on Canada. you. Yeah. Uh, hey, Richard, before we get started today, I want to make a couple of announcements. First of all, uh, Mr. Infusion, Greg Brill, is still looking for uh, junior and intermediate and uh, expert.net programmers in New York City. Uh, we talked about that. You, there's some some really good deals on uh, you know free apartment for a year and oh, all that's this right. kind He's of stuff. He's willing to move you to New York. He is to come and work with him for a year. If you know anybody who might be interested in this, let us know. the uh, The whole story is at shrinkster.com/kh6. Uh, the guy's very well connected, got a lot of opportunities, and he's just looking for people. So he's willing to. Uh, Go the extra mile to get you there, because I guess uh, a lot of people. There's a shortage of .NET programmers in New York City, apparently. And an interesting place to live in if you can get it for a year or two or longer. Dude, Central Park, man, <laughs> gotta love that place. 
Uh, also, that uh, franklins.net has got some great classes coming up in January. Miguel Castro's awesome ASP.net 2.0 Masterclass in VB. Uh, January 22nd and April 2nd, and the C-sharp version, February 19th and April 30th. Those are the Mondays. Of course, it goes through the whole week. And did you know, Richard, that uh, we record all the classes on DVD? I did not know that. You did not know that? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) So I make all the instructors uh, record with Camtasia, and we have microphones in the classroom. So even if we have people remotely, they go on the recording as well. So you'll hear people at the desk in the classroom and Miguel and people on the phone, and you'll see full screen like a DNR TV. But it's like 40 hours, right? It's like a right. whole week of... Sh- of. So um, we got our first offer for somebody who wanted to buy the DVD of Miguel's class. He couldn't make it, but he wanted the DVD. So we sold it to him, and, and I got the best email just praising us in this video. He says it's the best resource he's ever had. It's just like being there, except that he can rewind. Right. So and it, let's face it, it's hard to rewind Miguel Castro. He goes fast. Right. So if you're interested in Miguel Castro's ASP.NET 2.0 Masterclass, let us know. We have it on DVD. We'll sell it to you. Joel Semeniox, Just-In-Time Team System, Five Days of Team System. That's right. Where else but Franklin's.net? Well, Fair. Joel is the team system god. So you're listening and working with the very best when you're at his That's class. That's right. I, I mean, I have my tongue in my cheek. Of course, you know, the, <laughs> we, you know, it's just, just the banner, right? So well, uh, February- you, know, you really are doing master classes. You're bringing the very best in for each one of these fields and letting them do their thing. Miguel's knowledge of ASP.net can't be touched. He's yeah, phenomenal. He's awesome. All right. So uh, just-in-time team system is going to be February 12th and May 7th. Also, Mark Dunn, uh, who's got a show on .NET Rocks coming up on BizTalk 2006, he's got a BizTalk class that he and Mark Berry do that's just phenomenal. And uh, that's going to be happening here in New London, February 26th, June 4th, and August 6th. So we're booking into August already, and those classes sell out. Of course, the staple VB.net masterclass is taught by Tom Kinzer, awesome guy. Uh, He has got, you know, accolades from all of the people that have taken his class. Uh, This is basically a combination of his material and my material, and we sat down and we said, what would make the best uh, masterclass for VB 2005? March 12th, 2007 is the next one. And also, Michelle LaRue Bustamante is going to be here doing an iDesign WCF masterclass. And by the way, the VBNet masterclass is also brought to you by Dunn Training, Mark Dunn. Uh, and Michelle's class on WCF Wikifa is uh, May 21st. So we she got a is lot that of stuff. Indigo girl. She is. A lot of stuff going on. Okay, on to a couple of emails, and then let's get to the guest. As we have mentioned a couple of times, people send in emails, and they request audio versions of DNR TV. Which we laughed at at first. We scoffed. <laughs> ha ha, you say. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, we said. <laughs> and then uh, somebody said, nay, nay. He said, uh, you know, I like to listen. I would like to listen on my iPod before I download the video, because I can listen in the car and I don't have to commit the time to watching the video so I can see if it's something I'm interested in and then go back and watch it. So uh, we got this email, which seems to resolve the problem from Mark Friedman. And he says, hi, Carl and Richard. First, thanks for reading my letter on the show. That was very cool. This is a previous letter. 
Another listener wrote in about audio versions of DNR TV. I second that suggestion, but you really don't need to. All someone needs to do is rename the WMV file to WMA, and it becomes audio only. And then there are so many tools to convert that to MP3 if your MP3 player doesn't support WMA. Mark. So we haven't tried this officially, but, you know, Mark's a smart guy. Uh, you try it. If this is something you're interested in, just rename your WMV to WMA, put it on your iPod or your iRiver or whatever else plays WMAs, and uh, on your Zune, perhaps, and go to town. Let us know if it worked out for you. Okay, Richard, your turn. Well, I got a couple of emails here. You know, I've been asking for show suggestions, and we've been booking a lot of shows into the new year now. And I got a couple other ones here, and I'm not going to read them in detail because they really come down to two things. Uh, one was Andrew Burns' email asking for .NET Nuke 4.0. Mm-hmm. And DNN 4.0, very different from earlier versions. Yeah. So rang up Sean Walker, and we're going to book a show for early next year. So awesome. we're listening to you, Andrew. We'll get that one done. And the other one was from Jim Reich, and it was asking about Media Center. Yeah, I saw now, that. I mean, I you've got Media Center. I've got Media Center. He's even saying, hey, how about the Vista edition, which I've got to get around to trying myself. Yeah. And it really brought back a question I've had, because we've had a few other questions uh, uh, and, and requests for unusual shows like this. One was for Asterisk. Remember that? Asterisk is that uh, open source PBX software? Right. Which, I mean, I've got teenage daughters. You've got you know, lots of phone lines. Like, I'm very interested in a, in a computer-based PBX solution, but it's not .NET. And neither is Media Center, really. Yeah, right. But, you know, I guess this is the conflict is I'd love to do those shows. I think they'd be a gas, but yeah. they're sort of off our regular topics. So what do you think, you, you listeners? Do you think that uh, you could tolerate a show on Media Center and on a, on a uh, you know, a, a PBX software system that's open source? Is this something that you'd like to, to talk to these people about? We could dial up the, the Media Center team uh, at Microsoft sure. and get some... Talk maybe talk about some programmability points, but also about the coolness of it. You know, we could talk to the guys who wrote uh, Asterisk and uh, send any other suggestions you have to us, of course, at .net rocks at franklins.net. Yeah, more suggestions, the better. We'll keep making shows for you. I got one more email for you. It's a short one. It's from Greg Hopman saying, hey, Carl, I've been building up my self-confidence over the last year, spending a half hour a night just trying to stay technical since I got pushed down the program manager's path. Hmm. And I was just starting to feel okay when I hear you interview a 13-year-old kid. <laughs> and Greg, she's actually 11. <laughs> I got bad news for you. She was 11. Yeah, yeah. And she was only 9 when she got her C-sharp certification. Right. So you haven't begun to feel bad yet. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. played that I played that for my kids. And they looked at me like, let's watch SpongeBob now. You know? <laughs> All right, Richard, let's get to our guests. Uh, Venkat Subramaniam, star of DNRTV.com and founder of Agile Developer Incorporated, has trained and mentored more than 3,000 software developers in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Venkat helps his clients effectively apply and succeed with Agile practices on their software projects, and he speaks frequently at conferences. Venkat is also an adjunct professor for the practice of computer science at the University of Houston and teaches at Rice University. Andy Hunt is a programmer-turned-consultant, author, and publisher. He co-authored the best-selling book, The Pragmatic Programmer. He was one of the 17 founders of the Agile Alliance 
and co-founded the Pragmatic Bookshelf, publishing award-winning and critically acclaimed books for software developers. Van Ketten and Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey. Well, guys, before we get started, I got to say we got an email, you know, several weeks back from a uh, from a, a from a listener. Actually, Venket, this was about your show uh, that you did, episode forty-one of DNR TV, and I got to read this to you. Hi, Carl. I was so excited with your very last show and the presentation of Dr. Venket Subramaniam. So I've tried to generalize the find all method. And I'm sending you my code. Made 15 minutes after I saw the show. I don't know if you're interested in it and what you'll do about it, but I just had to share my excitement with someone. So here it goes. And he gave me this uh, Lambda Generics Extenders example that was uh, just an extension on the, the find all method that you uh, showed us in DNR TV in episode 41, Venkat. That is pure passion right there. Pure passion. That's what cracks me up about this, is I can see exactly where this guy's coming from. That he can't, was inspired by that show, he went down, wrote the code right away, and who's he going to show it to? His wife? That's right. No. <laughs> Guess what I did, dear, and you're all excited, and she has no idea what you're talking look about. Look at line 20. Look at line 20. Look, look, at this. look how cool this is. <laughs> so you got to email it. What else is there to do? That's awesome. But, but, you know, and the, the funny thing is, that really is the secret ingredient. You know, that is the magic bullet, the silver bullet. Everyone says, you know, what's the biggest secret? What's the, what's the, the real key to being a great developer? And, you know, the simple answer is exactly that, just passion for what you do. And, and a little curiosity ought to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think being inspired and, you know, going for it. People who are watching the shows and listening to this one, uh, often it's the same situation. You're just looking for an idea, and uh, hopefully once in a while we hit on a good one. I think we did for this guy. This is the ultimate reality TV for geeks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we just turn on the microphones and we talk. That's, you know. So let's talk. Uh, Venkat, we've talked to you, obviously, on DNR TV many times, and if you haven't seen any of Venkat's shows, you're missing out. Um, brilliant guy and uh, knows a lot about a lot. And it's very hard to find a generalist these days, but Venkat comes pretty close. Uh, he's taught me all about Ruby. He was the first guy to show that to me, and even though it's been around for quite a while. And, um, you know, all, all sorts of great low-level gotchas in his book, .NET Gotchas, uh, which I still think is a great way to approach um, teaching uh, .NET. Great stuff. Andy, however, I have not met you, and you guys have written a book together. Tell me about it. About the book or about writing it together? <laughs> well, let's start with about the book, and then we'll talk about writing it. <laughs> oh, well, boy. I see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we won't go there. Um, no, it's, it's, it's good fun. It's always good fun. Uh, the, the book we're talking about here is Practices of an Agile Developer, and this came about uh, about in part because... There's an inherent problem as soon as you start talking about processes or methods or methodology, if you prefer, as soon as you lay out something for someone and say, okay, well, here's the you know, 12 steps of XP or here's the practices of Scrum or, or here's you know, whatever, it's very, very easy to slip into a very dogmatic approach that says, well, these are the 12 things you have to do. And if you don't do them, you're not doing XP or you're not doing Scrum or you're not doing Crystal or whatever, and therefore you're out of the club, it's, it's invalid, it doesn't count, uh, and you get a lot of this sort of zealotry. 
zealotry, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Which people is, love it's these sort of a rules. natural outcome because people get people get really passionate about these sorts of things. They get really excited about it. And unfortunately, uh, they can tend to get these sort of narrow viewpoints about what it means to be agile or what does it mean to be a great developer. So this is, uh, in part, a way to sort of cut through all that and say, you know, it doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter if you label it lightweight development or agile or this or that or the other thing. These are the practices that any reasonable thinking developer wants to follow. And you want to follow them in roughly this way. So it's not a strict recipe book saying you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this other thing. It's more along the lines of this is a good idea. Here's where it helps. Here, if you do this too much, this is what could happen to you. If you don't do this enough, here's what could happen to you. Uh, in a way, it's more like a patterns book where you talk about the forces uh, that act on a various practice and that sort of thing. I have come across in my in travels in this community many zealots. Um, you, most of the time, they're not the people that are, you know, doing public speaking and writing books and stuff because I find that, you know, I too, when I was living in my ivory tower world of my single cubicle and writing all this code and just interacting with my computer, my boss, and maybe a couple other people, it's very easy to uh, get that tunnel vision that something works for you and therefore anyone who doesn't do it that way is an idiot, right? And when you, br I just wanted to say that when, you know, once I got out into the community and started talking to more people and more people and more people, it becomes very apparent that, you know, everybody has something to contribute. And uh, just when you think that you've, you know, you've got the answer, boom, someone comes up to you with something better. So. Well, and not even that. It's, it's, you always, you also start to discover that there's rarely one answer yeah. or one good answer. In fact, when we were, uh, both Fenkit and I wanted to put um, nice pithy quotes at the beginning <laughs> of the book to sort of lead it off. And for mine, I chose this marvelous quote um, from uh, uh, Santiana saying, almost every wise saying has an opposite one no less wise to balance it, hmm. which to me is really a, a part of the essence of Agile. There is rarely one right answer. You've yeah. got forces to contend with. You've got gradations of what's better for right now in this context. But, you know, and again, the whole idea of, of a best practice doesn't really make sense. Best for who? Best for when? What's the context? You can have... Yeah. Better. We're back to that old case of it always depends. Absolutely right. The, the, the consultant's favorite answer, it depends. That's what the customers don't want to hear too, right? No. no <laughs> How do you do this? That's, that's the honest answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if it was obvious, we'd all be doing it that way. Yeah. The fact that there's more than one way to succeed and, and certainly more than one way to fail uh, is the point. You've got to ultimately figure out which one's working for you. I'm I'm looking at the book and I'm looking at Venkat's quote and of course it's not in English. What typeface is that? <laughs> well, it is my mother tongue actually. It's oh. a very wise saying from uh, 31 BC by uh, uh, a poet who is considered to be extremely uh, uh, probably one of the best scholars uh, in uh, in Tamil. Thiruvalluvar. Yeah, Thiruvalluvar. Yep, Thiruvalluvar is uh, a poet from uh, that time. And. Uh, and, it, and, of course, there's the English translation here. Learn thoroughly what you learn. Let your conduct be worthy of what is learned. Hey, Richard, can I read it in Tamil, if you don't mind? Please. Absolutely. All right, here we go. I'll try. <clears throat> there you go. Lots of K's in there. 
<laughs> it's a it's a very poetic and beautiful language. I just want to see it. how the translators do with that. You know, <laughs> the transcript guys who's listening to this going, "Oh my God, what did he say?" <laughs> you can just leave that out, okay? That was just mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so where was, do we start, was, agile wise? Repeat that for me. So where do we start when talking about these practices? Well, let's let's start with asking, um, you know, hey, what's this? What's what's this all book about first? Yeah. So let me let me start off. Um, okay. So one of and one of the things I think about this book, uh, like Andy mentioned, uh, is that you need to figure out what applies in what situation, and a lot of things that agile books and agile practices tell you is about, you know, you have to do your unit testing, your continuous integration. And certainly, I think there's a great amount of value in all of that. But there are things that are far more significant and far-reaching than those values. And that is one of the things that we really wanted to focus on this book. So let's start with something really simple. Uh, here's a question for both of you, actually. Okay. You are driving on the freeway, and you decide you want to switch to the left lane, so you turn on the left indicator. What does the guy behind you on the left lane do? Huh. Depends he speeds what up. city you're in. He Almost, speeds yeah. up. Yeah. He speeds up. That's, yeah. that's right. So you probably figured this out very quickly. And the next time around, you find there's enough space between the two cars on the left. And you ease in without notice. And then maybe half the way through, you turn on the indicator so that you don't get a ticket. And... What's going to happen to the guy behind you? He probably gets ticked off and most likely waves at you with less than five fingers. Right. <laughs> and, and, you probably, and you probably get provoked and you respond back. And this may possibly lead to a road rage. If you really want to be on CNN, there are probably better ways to do it. <laughs> well, let's go back to the same scenario for a minute. You turn on the light to get to the left lane. And the guy in the ba uh, left lane realizes that you're trying to change lanes. And he rationalizes that you're probably going wherever you are going to your Omar office, and he is going wherever he is going, and he's really not in direct competition with you and lets you in. And then the city becomes a nice place to live, and the society is more civilized. Well, it's exactly the same scenario we started with. The result was very different. It's because of the attitude of the guy who was driving next to you. Mm. And in an Agile project or any project, what really makes a very big difference is the attitude people have towards each other and, and as a team as well and as individuals. And so one of the things we started focusing in this book is about attitude, what each one of us can do to make the development a better, uh, you know, the work a better place to be in. You know, we spend most of our awake time at work and we are producing good quality software. How can we do it? We can't possibly do that without having the right set of attitude. Venkat, I can sum that up if you, you know, in four words. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> can you say that on a podcast? You <laughs> uh, can on this one. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that, that's such marvelous advice. That should be on the bumper sticker right there. It should be. It works with management. It works in politics, certainly. It's, it's, a, it's a really good universal principle. I think so, too. I think it may be up there with the golden rule. You know, In <laughs> fact, it is the golden rule, if you think about it. Well, if that is the case, I would say this book is to find out 
if you are or not. <laughs> sort of a Chapter test, two, really. are you an asshole? Yeah. <laughs> Answer the following questions. <laughs> and act, actually, you know, that there is more than a bit of truth to that. I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications, and you can find them online at www.telerik.com. One of the neat devices we used in the book was on each individual tip, there's this little cartoon figure of a devil at the beginning of the tip that says something that sounds kind of almost reasonable in a sort of pointy-haired boss kind of a way. And you find yourself kind of almost thinking along with it like, yeah, yeah, we could do that to the programmers. We could do this. And (laughs) then, of course, you realize this is the evil voice trying to tempt you uh, into these, these bad habits or these evil ways. And so, so to counter that, at the end of each tip, we've got the angel giving um, its advice, saying what you're really supposed to do. Do you want to have one from the book? Here's oh, one right from the beginning, too. The first and foremost important step in addressing a problem is to determine who caused it. Find <laughs> that moron. Once you've established fault, then you can make sure that problem doesn't happen again. Ever. Ever. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good this one. This is like the guidance from the Russian mafia, I think. That's right. <laughs> Find the jerk that did it. Well, you know, let's, let's, let's go to that practice that you just mentioned. You know, work for the outcome is, is what you're reading from, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you a story real quick before we, um, we talk about this, if you don't mind. Um, this happened very recently. In fact, um, well, I'll be non-specific about when it happened. Um, it, it's, it's a case where I was on a committee, and we were supposed to uh, make a very important decision in this committee. So I sent an email out to the committee members asking them to come over for the meeting, get themselves ready for this particular um, uh, you know, event. And it gets forwarded to another person who can be very valuable. And the next thing I find is an email screaming at my face, saying, how dare I did not invite this valuable person for the meeting. And he's resigning from this committee and, you know, going on and on and emailing to, you know, all kinds of people. Right. CC'd everybody. CC's everybody, right? So I write back to him saying, you know, first of all, my un- unconditional apology for excluding you. You need to realize that I stand no, I, I don't stand to benefit at all by in- excluding you. And you are very valuable. Show up for this. I had I known that you're on the committee, I certainly would have invited you. And then, of course, I get a response back from another person who's saying, hey, your committee list is correct. This person has no clue what he's talking about. You know, you're not, you know, at fault. And I explained back saying, hey, you know what? Doesn't matter. You're important. Come in and, you know, give us your opinion. Well, unfortunately, that's the last I ever heard. This person was more than interested in screaming than helping us solve the problem. And Venkat, what you said to him in that email, you could have summed up by saying, don't be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> see how handily that I see that a works. theme here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing is that we, unfortunately, from time to time, 
uh, come across some people whose primary focus is really not to solve problems, but to create more problems. Yeah. And Poison. ego kind of gets into the way very quickly. And when, we, when people's focus is not to solve problems, you know, again, the, one of the key things about agility is, is to succeed. If we are not succeeding in projects, I don't care what name we give it, whether it's agile or not, doesn't matter. And if we need to be able to succeed, we need to kind of keep that ego in check. And it's important to find a team in which people are, you know, focused on solving problems rather than finding out, you know, whom can we blame? Who can we scapegoat at this point? Right. It comes down to what's more important, shipping the software or making sure you feel good about it. Well, that's exactly right. And there was a reason why we put this as the number one, the very first tip uh, in the book. Agility, any method, but agility in particular, depends on having a team that's motivated to actually be successful, to actually get this done and get it out the door. And that sounds like such an obvious thing to say, but if you look at some other you know, heavier weight methodologies, a lot of them are, pre, uh, are premeditated on the fact that you have people who are not incented to get software out the door. They're working nine to five. They're trying to keep a job. Maybe they're not particularly skilled enough for what you're demanding of them. You know, all these sorts of, of other kinds of issues. Yeah, the last so thing you, they want to do is actually ship the software. Then they don't have any work left. Exactly. <laughs> so true. you've got components of other methodologies that try to sort of rein in people who aren't real excited to be there in the first place. And it strikes me of that that's being just an incredible waste of energy. At energy that we, we don't have to spare. I have heard the line that the waterfall method is really designed to develop sufficient documentation for the lawsuit. Hmm. <laughs> well, I think that's certainly true of ISO 9000 and, and, and family. Uh, it, but, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the waterfall method. If you look back at Royce's original paper in 1971, plus or minus, um, he, in the original paper where, where this uh, Professor Royce outlined what has become known as the waterfall method, he actually had little feedback loops in between each of the steps so that as you proceeded to, to the next phase of the waterfall, you fed feedback to the phase before you and you could go back and make changes and adapt as you went along and proceed along this way. And in the very paper itself, he says this sort of you know, classic waterfall with no feedback can't really work in the real world. And for 30 years, everybody kind of missed that sentence. See, again, again a proof yeah. that nobody reads documentation. There again, <laughs> an absolutely great proof. Well, it's like, you remember that great line by uh, the, the fellow, uh, was it uh, Costello, who was the president of, of Cadence some years back? He said, I've never met a person who wanted to read 17,000 pages of documentation, and if I did, I'd kill him to get him out of the gene pool. <laughs> <laughs> So, but, yeah. but back to Royce for a second. I mean, he, he noted way back when, and Fred Brooks has noted back from the Mythical Man Month and, and the No Silver Bullet paper, you know, time and time again that you have to have feedback. You have to have some way of saying, hey, am I doing the right thing? Is this working? And then adjusting what you're doing based on the feedback. Yeah. This, this is an old idea, and this is now what we call agility, but this idea of being adaptable and changing what you're doing based on what's really happening, is, is the heart of it. Everything is iterative. Absolutely. 
Well, and, and I think that's kind of the key is to think about why we want to do this. And it is not to please ourselves as programmers. If we cannot, at the end of the day, justify this is better for the business, it doesn't make any sense at all. And in fact, that's what excites me about agile development is that it has a very direct impact on the business itself. If you are trying to build a software, and if you're going to hide in a cave, build it for two years, and then you are coming and surprising your users, look what we built, no wonder they are shocked and surprised that you built something very irrelevant. It's going to be a hell of a surprise. <laughs> yeah. so, so, in fact, I would right. go to the extent of saying, if your objective is to meet what the customers wanted, you will be failing. It's very important to meet what they want, and that's one of the reasons why you want this you know, frequent feedback so you can make sure that you are in line with their expectations. And the more frequent you check, the more you are relevant to what you're delivering as an application, and that has a direct business impact. I think there's an interesting truth there as well, which is that even if you did do exactly what they wanted, it's now wrong. Absolutely. You know, successful software is also wrong because it affects the business. It ultimately changes things. Yeah, they're kind of a Heisenberg sort of a sort of an arrangement there. Yeah, absolutely. You, you you can't help but be wrong, whether you did it right or wrong. Plus, don't forget the passage of time. You, you say, okay, so you if you could theoretically capture all the user's requirements perfectly and then start working on it. Six months goes by, a year goes by, two years goes by. Guess what? The rest of the world is not in some kind of stasis field while you're doing this. Everything else has changed. So you can't do the sort of Rip Van Winkle thing, even if you got it perfect up front. By the time you delivered it, it'd still be wrong. Tell me about uh, the phrase, tell, don't ask. Oh, that one's mine. Let me, let me feel that one. Tell, don't ask was this, this marvelous notion that I got from an older book on small talk um, by Alex Sharp, where he made the, the statement that a proper object-oriented program tells objects to do things. It doesn't ask them stuff. Hmm. It commands. It sends it. And if you look at the sort of small talk metaphor, you don't call, me- you don't call methods on objects. You send messages to objects. And that's a very subtle distinction. But when you start looking at it and, and sort of wrapping your mind around this idea, here's the, here's the stereotypical situation you want to avoid. You've got some honking big class that's just a big data wrapper. Yeah. And all this code's going around, drawing information out of it, pulling fields out, doing some calculation, and then stuffing a result back in, or you know, calling some other command or something like that. That is you know, obviously a huge violation of encapsulation. Now you've got things being processed all over the code base that should be inside that object, and they're not. So any time where you find yourself pulling something out of an object, doing something with it, and then either making a call or making a call and putting it back in, that is, that's hell. You want to avoid that at all costs. The biggest example of this was the Y2K fiasco. Right? Ah. If you look at the root of the problem, what happened with the whole year 2000 situation was a lack of encapsulation. If there had been an equivalent, uh, they had no classes in, in COBOL at the time, but if you had even a subroutine library that knew about dates and knew that the two-digit encoding was a shorthand method and this is what it really meant, if that, if that had been the scenario, the entire Y2K remediation would have taken about 12 minutes. Hmm. But it didn't. Instead, that knowledge that, ooh, this is the shorthand representation, 
all this code all over the place new to unpack and pack from it and how to deal with it in that encoding. Hmm. And that's what caused the fiasco. Hmm. So, so this, this comes back to the idea you can help preserve encapsulation and help make sure you're doing the right thing if you think of it as sending commands to objects. Because as soon as you say, go do this thing, now automatically you don't care how. You're not giving it a step-by-step, blow-by-blow, do this, do that, do the other thing, because that's not your business. You're just sending a command. It's like having little servants at your disposal. You know, go do this, slave, and they go off and do it, and you don't care how. You don't care what the implementation is. That is a true object-oriented programming. Nice. Um, When you're talking about debugging, you guys recommend keeping a solutions log. Not a log of your application, but a log of things that worked Hey, um, here's a way to think about it. You know, we talk about time boxing when it comes to, uh, you know, a lot of activities in agile development. So you tell the boss you're going to take three hours to find out what the problem is and fix it. So three hours comes and goes. And as we have all have experience, you know, debugging, you haven't solved the problem. So what do you tell the boss? Boss, I tried for three hours. Can we now call this a feature? <laughs> so the mm-hmm. question is, how do we take the time to fix the problems and not waste too much time? Yeah. And there are certain things we can do to solve these kinds of problems. And one of them is to isolate the problem from its surroundings. And that can be done by effective use of prototyping. And the prototyping may help us isolate the problem by saying, yep, here's the problem area. And if the prototyping doesn't show you the problem, you still isolated the problem from the surroundings. But when you do find and fix a problem, I'm sure a lot of times we have seen cases where you come back and take a look at a certain problem and say, gee, I've actually seen this problem two months ago or six months ago, and I can't quite remember how I fixed it. And as much as I love Google, you go Google for something, and sometimes all that you find is there are 10,000 people who have the same problem as you do, right. and everybody's in the same unfortunate situation as you are. Yep. So... You need to be able to find the problems and fix them. You don't want to be beaten by the problem more than once. You don't want to pay the toll repeatedly for this. So one of the interesting ways to do that is to keep a solution stock, like a daily log. And problems that you face, the types of solutions you, uh, you address, and it's not to turn your job into a documentation nightmare, but a very few pointers on what the problem was, how you fixed it, can at times save you so much effort and time uh, in, in getting to the solution the next time it happens or something similar happens, and that can be of great help. What level of granularity do you, do you recommend people use here? Because oftentimes problems are very specific to the application that you're writing uh, and may or may not be applicable in other applications. Right. Sometimes the, the problems may not be uh, applicable to other applications, but you know, even simple things, the general rule of thumb by use is if I take two to three minutes to identify and solve a problem or more, I mean, a lot of times I spend 15, 20 minutes looking for an answer. So try to define what that is. Don't worry so much about how reusable this is going to be. If you can take 30 seconds and write it off somewhere and leave it, and the next time, you, if you do find a problem similar to it, you're not going to waste so much time. So I don't think I would worry so much about, is it going to be reoccurring in other situations? But if it does, it pays off. What is the uh, biggest mistake that 
either of you can answer this. What is the biggest mistake that you see people make over and over and over again? Well, one of the mistakes I've seen people do is when a problem surfaces in an application, you know, close your eyes and imagine this for a minute. You have your application as a huge monster, right? This huge monster is roaring and screaming in a room, and John, the programmer, is clinging on dearly to the ears of this monster. And he has <laughs> tried for a couple of days to control it. He couldn't, that, that monster being your application. And the boss says, don't worry, I'll help you, and say, sends Sarah. And Sarah runs fast and clings on to the tail of the monster, trying to bring it down. So a lot of times I find people trying to control this huge, monstrous application, and they try to debug and tame this. That becomes extremely difficult. And I think if we can spend the time in isolating the problem from its surroundings, and a lot of times I find developers, me included in the past, trying to jump into the code base, trying to solve these problems, when we can say, okay, I'm going to isolate this, start writing maybe a sample application on the side, uh, and, and see if I can prototype this and examine the problem. The other way to solve this particular problem is to see if I can use unit testing and maybe some isolation to test a part of the system independent of the entire system. You know, it gets really tough when somebody clicks through seven pages entering data into forms only to get to the problem area to show you where the code is failing. And then when you think there's something solution, you try it, and then they go back and enter, go through the seven pages again to get to see the, uh, you know, to that part and say, hey, is it working again? So I think, mm. you know, we need to kind of examine ways in which we can get better. Uh, and and this, this, you know, has a very strong uh, effect on stress. You know, we get stressed out when we are not able to find and isolate problems. And when we are stressed out, we are not going to be as likely to think of good solutions, and that's only going to make things worse. Let, yeah. me, let me answer this, too. That's a great question. The biggest problem that I see that people do, or biggest mistake people make over and over again, is keeping code past its expiration date. There's uh, a lot of code that you write, and you think it's great, and it's, it's sort of like really old cottage cheese in your refrigerator. Oh, nasty. You know, and it starts turning all blue and nasty, but, you know, you spent all this effort in writing it the first time, and it almost works, and you're debugging it, and you're refactoring it, and you're working on it, and, you know, the fact is this is still like three-month-old cottage cheese, and it, it ain't getting any better. <laughs> and, you know, we, we said back in, in, the, in the original Pragmatic Programmer book, I think it was, that one of the best things that can happen to code a lot of the times is a nice old-fashioned hard disk crash. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just, just start over. And this, I find this really interesting from a, from a psychological point of view, because once you've invested a whole lot in some piece of code, there's this feeling that, well, I can't just throw that away. I've got to keep working at it to make this work. Right. I can't afford to start over. The boss won't let me start over. The customer won't let me start over, you know, what have you. There's this idea that you can sort of just keep hammering on it, and, and maybe you could turn... Um, you know, the sow into a silksier, however, however that's supposed to work. Um, and it just, it doesn't work out. You know, you've got to be prepared to let go of it. Um, again, in the be very beginning of the practices book, there's this marvelous quote that says, no matter how far down the wrong road you've gone, turn back. <laughs> I mean, duh! <laughs> but we don't. You know, we get this emotional investment or we get this idea that, we get this idea that the actual product of coding is the code. It is right. not. That is not the intellectual property. The code is almost irrelevant. What you have learned 
in writing it, what's in your head from having designed it and created it. That's the intellectual property. Hmm. You could argue, if anything, the unit tests are the intellectual property. Hmm. That's where the value is. That's what defines what the code does. So the code itself just keeps getting less and less important. If you've got something that's just not working out, trash it, Hmm. remove it, throw it away, start over. The second attempt will almost always be better than the first anyway. Yeah, and I mean, if you did it once, you can do it again, right? It's not probably people don't faster. Think that. People generally, people do not think that way. There's, there's, there's not. There's an attitude of scarcity, not of abundance. Boy, that's true. You know, I've writing really code seen that is firsthand. hard. My God, it was so hard the first time. I, I can't face doing it a second time. You realize how what a falsehood that is if you spend your time in front of audiences writing code like you guys do. You've probably written the same routines over and over and over again. And it doesn't take you very long to feel comfortable that you can do that. And, and probably more efficiently than next time around. Yeah. yeah, yeah the code best, only gets better by, its re, by redoing well, it. The well, best code the, I've ever the, written is the stuff that I've taught other people. Right. Well, <laughs> one of the redone. things that I try to keep for myself is if I'm spending on a certain task two or three hours, it usually indicates to me that I'm overly complicating this. And, and I tried to take, take a sense of it. So I try to keep things as short as possibly can, you know, it can be. And the more longer I keep the code away from everybody else's site, you know, away from checking in the code, usually that it get, it's getting really complex. And you um, also subscribe to the XP practice of breaking down complex things into simple tasks that you can complete in one day? Do or, you or, or do you? shorter, if you or can. Shorter, yeah. yeah. So at the end of the day, you actually feel like you've done something. You can check something off your list. Well, I even go to the extent of saying every 15 or 20 minutes, I want to see some working code. If I'm going to be hiding in a corner and writing code for you know two hours without having gone through a full cycle of build, test, and exercising the code several times over, there's something really wrong. Yeah. Let me emphasize that that, that is a very common uh, problem with teams that are trying to adopt Agile for the first time. Um, in, in the last month alone, I've probably had two dozen people tell me that they had a lot of trouble trying to figure out how to do iterative development, and they just couldn't do it. And I said, well, well, why? What's the problem? And in each case, it turned out that their lowest level granularity feature was something that took you know, them six or eight weeks to write. So, you know, the, low, the smallest yeah. thing they could break it down to was taking them eight weeks. And it's like, okay, that's, that's silly. You know, you can't, no, you cannot be iterative in that environment. You've got to break that into smaller pieces. Take smaller bites so you don't <laughs> choke on it. Well, and you're talking about iterations in the period of under an hour. Absolutely. It's not going to do much each hour, but it's going to keep integrating. You're not going to get far off the path, and the feature will grow. And yeah, that's exactly, you see progress, and don't underestimate the psychological benefits of witnessing progress. This is one of, the, one of the, the inherent problems with software development, is that it's invisible. Sponsors can't see it, you really can't see much of it, you, we've got this little viewport on the desk, you know, it's very hard to see, it's certainly hard for outsiders to gauge progress, and it can be hard for us to gauge Nobody progress. Nobody gets excited about K-locks. 
No, no, definitely not. Or your, your case before where the person called in with that wonderful bit of code dying to show it to somebody right. and nobody cares. Right. Yeah. But you know, it's an interesting truth that when I'm talking to managers about, they, they say, I'm not getting any feedback from your developers. I said, that's because your developers aren't productive. Well, so how do you know? It says, every developer who's being productive wants to talk about it. You yep. will have to shut them up. Right. Yep. Absolutely right. Well, you know, here's an interesting uh, uh, chapter in the book. I really uh, particularly like, let design guide, not dictate. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Uh, I think that is a very important thing uh, to keep in mind. When we design software, you know, each one of us should be proud about what work we do. But at the same time, when we come up with a design, we are coming up with it based on what we know at the moment. And one thing we all know about developing software is as we start developing software is when we really get a better understanding of what it really involves. So if I say that I've come up with a design today and I'm going to be so proud and hold forth guarding that design, we end up actually protecting something that eventually is going to make it extremely difficult to, uh, to deal with the you know, software over time. Uh, another bigger, pr- bigger problem is when developers, when, when teams, especially, you know, when we are under pressure, sometimes we organize designers and coders. Uh, that is a disaster. If somebody is going to do the design and somebody else is going to do the coding, there is some serious problem that's going to happen. Um, I firmly believe that the people who design and the people who code should be a common set of people. It's just different hat people wear and I don't want people to be writing code that they have not designed or participated in the design. And that's very important that the design, a, a programmer who refuses to design is a programmer who refuses to think. Hmm. And it's important that we take a design as an idea, just a, a little direction that we want to follow, and then refine it along the way as we start implementing the code. And, and in agile development, we use refactoring. Refactoring is uh, broadly, another name for you know evolutionary design, yeah. and we want to constantly refine this design. So we need to be proud about solving the problem than saying, "Look, I designed this and never had to change it." There's no pride in it. It's important to say that we designed it and we have evolved the system where it actually meets the customer's needs and functions the way it it should function. I think is more important. And on the same token, you know, talking about roles that people play, it's important that. You know, architects that are involved in the team uh, participate to a great amount of degree writing the code because the design and the things that people come up with are more relevant when we participate at the – the code is the truth. The code tells us what works and what doesn't work, and ignoring that is going to be a problem. So I can't believe people would like to design systems without participating in the coding, and we need to, you know, make it evolutionary. Here's another uh, sideline thought to that, just to sort of ponder. Given the fact that we're always learning and growing, you will always be smarter tomorrow than you are today. So don't work today. <laughs> we'll put it off. Lazy, you know, laziness. No wonder written. I procrastinate. <laughs> we're waiting for the muse to. Hey, hey, Richard. If you don't work today, you get poorer tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a balance of wealth versus intelligence. There you I can go. be rich and stupid or poor and smart. <laughs> this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. 
Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. I used to tell my students that, you know, if you're just starting out in .NET, you know, your boss is going to be giving you a little bit of leeway, but your boss would better spend their money by sending you to the beach with the, you know, the the specs for the system dot namespace, you know, and just have you read it for a week because you're going to make up that time many, many times over by knowing what's your what's your time and and Mark Dunn used to say and I and this is a great quote that the difference between a really good .net developer a really good developer and a really bad developer nowadays is your willingness to read the documentation like the docs contain all the stuff that you need pretty much to know what you're doing now you know it's no you're no longer like searching online and going to you know through this book and that book and this book and that book um so and to a great extent, also reading the spec, you know, how many developers actually do that? Yeah. Hey, what is what do you mean by communicating in code? Okay, so in terms of, you know, I'm not a big fan of commenting code. I believe that oftentimes people comment code to cover up bad code. And, and I, I, uh, quite a few people will take offense to that statement, but I want to clarify what I mean by that. I'm sure you have seen code where, you know, you say class car, and then the next thing you see here is a car parentheses open close slash slash constructor. You know, it just annoys me when I see comments that tell you the obvious, uh, comments that don't really explain why the code exists, but try to explain to you what the code is doing. Yeah. I mean, if you need comment to explain what the code is doing, why do you need the co- code then? Right. And so I think what we can do is we can write the code in a way that code is expressive. And, and I'll give you a, a great example of this. Uh, this happened a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm working on a project, and I go to the client site, and one of the really good developers comes over to me and he says, hey, I want to show you this code. And I see this for loop, and there's a for loop, you know, two levels of for loop. And I spent about 15 minutes reading this code, and I couldn't figure out what it's doing. After 15 minutes, I begin to understand what it's doing. So I decided to put a line of comment before the inner loop telling what it is doing. Then I read your book about, you know, where you talk about commenting, and I decided to take that inner loop and turn it into a method whose name was indicative of what it is doing. So instead Hmm. of writing a comment line, I Hmm. named the method as that. And what do you think of this? I looked at him and said, you probably don't know. I'm the guy who wrote that method in the first place. <laughs> and I'm real. And, and of course, you know, he looked at me like, oh my gosh, no, I didn't mean to offend you or anything saying this, bringing it to your attention. I said, no, 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 this is fantastic. Because when you're down in the trenches, you know how much trouble I took to write that method because that was a very tricky area of code. I had to do a lot of understanding to write it. And once I had written it, it was working. But when you came back, you basically did what I would call as a good refactoring. And that is the whole idea. I couldn't have picked up a better example because it was my code that got refactored into a better code, yeah. and he did not write a comment for it. I mean, that's a great example, that's I think. That's very cool. 
of, of where you can actually learn. And the next time I write a for loop and put an inner for loop, this comes to my mind. I'm actually becoming a better programmer now because of that, such a positive feedback. Uh, and, and that is the whole point. And to me, what I think about when I, when I think of coding, uh, good code is like a good joke. Just say it and move on. When was the last time you explained a good joke and people thought it was funny, right? Don't over-explain, in other words. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. if you need to explain, it wasn't that funny. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just have an interesting story along these lines about uncommented code. When um, Dave Thomas and I first wrote the Pickaxe book, the original language reference for the Ruby programming language, there was no documentation whatsoever in English. Uh, Matt, the fellow who had written the Ruby language, is Japanese, and any documentation that existed was in Japanese. Mm. Unlike my gifted colleague here, I don't speak more than one language. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Dave and I went to go document, you know, the entire Ruby language in the libraries, and so we're, we're digging through the code to the interpreter. It was written in C. We're looking through the code. There's no comments. Hmm. There's absolutely no comments. And I realized quite quickly that that was a really good thing because this was one of the very few pieces of code I've ever written that genuinely did not need comments. You could follow through the code and say, oh, look, here's where a variable gets created. This is how assignment works. Here's how it's looking in the symbol table, you know, so on and so forth. You could trace through and, and really find out quite easily what exactly the language would do in any given set of circumstances. Now, by comparison, there are several other um, uh, open-source scripting languages who shall remain nameless, that if you look <laughs> at the internals, it is impenetrable. Yeah. You could have a detailed commentary next to it, and you'd still be scratching your head. Hmm. Um, you know, just, just very messy, very difficult. You know, it's a hard thing to write code that's that clean. And this was one of the few cases where I, I you know, firsthand saw, wow, you know, this is, this is really possible. What do you guys mean by cohesive, cohesive code? Well, you know, here is a way to think about it. When you're writing code, what if your method or your, let's take ASP, uh, you know, .NET page or whatever that you want to talk about. What if it does access to the database, does business logic, does UI presentation, dances around, makes a noise, everything is there in the code. Imagine when you build an application, most of us, I would think, programmers are very good in writing code, but we don't quite have the ability to make things aesthetic or beautiful. You know, I have this theory that the brain and the beauty is not on the same head. So, <laughs> I knew a girl like that once. <laughs> Richard, that is officially the 42nd time you've used that on this show. Is it wrong? <laughs> Tell me it's wrong. <laughs> What was that thing about tell the joke and move on? <laughs> <laughs> so, so if, you, if, if somebody comes over to make changes to the aesthetics of the page or the UI, and they have to stumble through all this code vomit and step over <laughs> things. Code vomit. I yeah, love technical it. Technical term. Yeah. <laughs> I got a na new name for my band, Richard. <laughs> It becomes very expensive to maintain the code. It also, you, you introduce errors doing this. It becomes extremely mm. difficult mm. Uh, to keep up with the code. So what is cohesiveness? Co cohesiveness is a way to keep things isolated, separated from each other. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, my parents tried to teach me this very hard lesson that I need to keep things in a good way, in a maintainable way. Mm. You know, I would come back from school eagerly, 
toss all things into a draw and run away. And then when one right. of my friends comes over and says, hey, you want to go play? I would open the draw, and if I pulled out the red socks, you can be guaranteed that the next socks will not be red. Yeah. And it would take me more time when I'm in a hurry to find the right kind of sock. How did I fix the problem? Well, personally, I got married. Oh, <laughs> hey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I had to throw, it, uh, throw that in, you know. So anyway, the, the w- way you fix it is to keep the right kind of, you know, clothes together. Put all your color socks in one place. Put your underwear in another place. It's easier to find it when you need it. Well, mm. that is exactly what cohesiveness is all about. Keeping like code together and dislike code apart from it. Hmm. The way I like to think about the topic of cohesion is the old idea of the original um, uh, sort of Unix ideals that you write small, sharp tools. You write a tool or a piece of code that does one thing and does it very well. You know, as soon as you start slopping more <coughs> code vomit in there and, <laughs> and doing things that aren't you know, necessary or aren't focused on that one thing, that's where you start getting into trouble. Um, there's this great example. Uh, some years ago, I was looking for something else, and I stumbled across an old U.S. patent from the 1800s for a convertible piano couch bureau. Huh? <laughs> so this was a combination. You've got to picture this. It's a combination <laughs> piano, sofa, and bureau on the end. <laughs> and this guy patented it, and there's this lovely pen and ink illustration. It's, it's patent 56413, if you want to go Google it. Can it only um, be one of those things at any one time? Uh, no, you could supposedly have somebody, <laughs> there's room there. You could be having made put something in the bureau. You could be sleeping on the sofa and somebody could be standing on your stomach playing. That is a now. very sick thought, by the way, Carl. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but the thing is, right, as, as, as you know, Frankenstein-esque as that is, how many times have you seen code where they do exactly that? Yeah. You've got all these things kind of crammed in there. You know, anytime you see a class that says manager at the end, you know, it's probably got five of these just disparate things kind of stuffed in there. And the whole point with cohesion in code is, as soon as you do that, it doesn't do any of them particularly well. Mm. You know, it's hard to play this, this combination piano if you're standing on the bed. You know, right. it's going to be hard to tune the piano because you've got to get all this other cruft in the way. Trying to make the bed, you've got all the keys in your way. You know, it's harder to maintain. It's harder to deal with. It's harder to use. Um, it's just, it's the road to badness. You know, so we try to say, think of, you know, small, sharp tools, do one thing, do it well, and then move on. You know, it, it seems like common sense to me because these are all sort of things I'm discovering about agile development practices that I've been doing all these years. Um, not everything, of course. You know, there's some great, great stuff there that I haven't that, that's new to me. But a lot of it is is just putting on paper the things that you know that that you naturally would do if you're trying to make good, efficient, reusable code. Right, and the the problem is that for various societal forces, if you will, even though these are the obvious things and we want to do them, we end up not doing them. Sometimes yeah. the tools lead us down the bad road. Um, you know, certainly some of the, the visual GUI tools will get you into a mode where you want to stick a whole bunch of code right in a callback in the GUI rather than, you know, sending it back to another class to handle it. Um, certainly pressure from customers, from the marketplace, from our bosses, from our own psychology even though a lot of these things are obvious and you know seem good when you put it on paper, by default we don't do them. Yeah, there, there's forces against us where we don't do it. So we find that it helps a lot of people 
just by putting it down in paper and saying, yes, this is a good thing. Yes, you should do this. That's something they can point to their boss or to somebody and say, no, look, at these guys, they know what they're doing. It says right here, I should right. be doing it this way. Um, some of the biggest uh, uh, compliments we got from the original Pragmatic Programmer book were exactly along those lines, saying, you know, this is some stuff that I always knew, but I didn't know if it was right. I didn't have any way of really defending it. You know, it just seemed like sort of a right thing. And so this really continues that tradition, saying, yes, this is the stuff. This is what you want to do. Hey, let's talk about uh, collaboration for a moment. Um, what is What do you mean by allowing people to figure it out? This is one thing that you recommend, allow people to figure it out. Andy, you want to take over? Not at all. That one's yours. Okay. He's <laughs> trying to. I was hoping that you would let you let you figure it out. Case <laughs> <Based> in point. <laughs> Stranger colleague on a live show. <laughs> well, you know, uh, a lot of times when you are trying to work with people, sometimes we are way too eager to give an answer to people. And I'll, I'll give you an example of where I learned this. Uh, there are some advantages. You know, being a mentor is a very important uh, factor. We need to help others learn. And in the process, we learn ourselves. Yeah. And if somebody comes over to you, being a mentor is not about giving answers. Being a mentor is giving an opportunity for others to learn from us. And that is so go so goes against our natural instinct to let the ego take over and not waste any opportunity to show anybody how smart we are, right? Right. Well, you know, we are smart if we know the answer. We are smarter if we help others figure out the answer. And and that's that's where it's important to help the other people. You not only tell them how to, uh, you not only get get the answers to them. You help them how to arrive at the answer. Yeah. And to me, one of the interesting things about this was, uh, this happened when somebody came to me and he said, "How do you do this?" I said, "Look, I exactly know how to do this, but I won't tell you. Go figure this out. Here are the resources you probably can look at, and come back in about fifteen twenty minutes. If you cannot figure it out, I'll tell you the answer." Yeah. So this guy comes back in about five minutes with another issue, and he says, oh, by the way, anyway, thanks, I found the answer. I said, what did you find? And he explains to me what he found, and I said, wait a minute, that's not what I had in my mind. Mm. And this actually is better than what I had. So this was an opportunity not only for me to help him learn, I was learning along the way as well. Mm. So I think being a mentor is a very important role, and we need to help people by giving them opportunity to solve problems. And that is a key thing because we are in a, you know, we more than being programmers, we are problem solvers. Yeah. And that is something we need to take the time to, to learn along the way. And that is very important. Yeah, very, very true. Uh, you know, the usual way that I phrase that is, is, you know what, I could figure this out. I have no doubt. I have not yet. And I hope I don't have to please do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, an interesting thing there is, you know, a lot of these, if you've noticed, a lot of the things we talk about here have to do with teamwork. And this is one of those things that's sort of fascinating to me. If you look at most uh, undergraduate programming degrees, uh, university degrees, the students really don't get much of an opportunity to work in teams. They're certainly not taught how to work in teams. You're given these, you know, sort of programming exercises. You do. You write a couple programs. Maybe, if you're lucky, you'll do uh, some group work 
uh, at the end of the semester with maybe two or three other people, and that's it. So there's none of this discussion of, well, how do you act in a team? How do you set up a, a mentoring uh, atmosphere? How, does the, how do these relationships work? You know, how, you know, are you supposed to put your ego in check on a team? Are you supposed to be the cowboy? You, you know, none of this is, is actually taught in any way uh, in, in the school. So it's no wonder you get these, these poor folks who've gone through, gotten a CS degree or something, then, they're, then suddenly you don't work by yourself anymore. You're thrown onto a team with 10 other people. Right, and you have no idea what what are the social norms, what's expected of me, how is this supposed to work, and and also there's no point in hiding in a corner, taking three days to find a solution to a problem that everybody else in the team already knows the answer for. What a waste of time and money! Yeah, doing that. Yeah, I've been on a number of teams where they they set sort of a, a debugging limit. So it's like if you're stuck on some problem and you've been debugging it for more than say an hour. And you pick some amount of time, an hour, two hours, you pick some hard limit, and if you're still stuck, you go and get help. You drag somebody else and say, okay, I've done my two hours, you know, I'm stuck, I can't figure this out. And then the other people on the team are obligated, if you ask, to come and help you, and if they need help, you know, so on and so on it goes. Because, you know, again, we don't have the time to waste with somebody sitting there for three weeks trying to debug some simple, you know, memory leak or, or problem or what have you. Uh, we've got to get this done. This is the basic definition of thrashing, right? That that you get into a point where you're just spinning your wheels, and you need another pair of eyes. Another pair of eyes immediately points and goes, "Dude, you didn't validate this." You know, like right. it's a it's eminently Im- apparent to them. Yeah, yep. and not that they're any great clairvoyance or anything. It's just as you say, it's a fresh pair of eyes. And, and sometimes the mere effort to explain something to others opens up such a memory path in our mind that's like, oh, wait a minute, I remember what I had done in the past, and that probably is causing this. Oh, wait a minute, thanks for your help. And the other guy's yeah. like, well, thank you, but I didn't do anything. Yeah, well, and you, know, you were just and standing there. Just the process of trying to articulate it right. led, led him to the answer. And that's exactly what happens, because as you're articulating it, you have to uh, announce all of your assumptions. So you're saying, well, we've come this far, and this is set to that, and I'm going to do this. And so the stuff that you may have sort of taken for granted while you were debugging it, you have to explain out loud and reveal all your assumptions. And, yeah, two lines in, you go, oh, and I was supposed to set this to zero. And yep. the other fellow nods and walks away. And it's like, uh-huh. Um, that's why back in the, uh, in the Pragmatic Programmer book, we had this idea of rather than annoying your coworkers all the time with that, you just set a yellow rubber duck up on top of your monitor and so anytime you have a problem, first thing you do is talk to the duck. <laughs> <laughs> I have a little rubber lizard for that reason, but that's only because I know that lizards eat bugs. You know, it's, no! oh, <laughs> you know, it seems like a lot of your answers and suggestions here come down to, I, I mentioned common sense before, but come down to good communication, whether it's through your code or with your collaborators or with your bosses or through you know, testing results, good communication is well, really what it's all about, isn't it? Two, two things that I think are key to success, and you can even call it key to agility, is communication and feedback. Without these two things, we might as well go home. There's no point doing agility. I, that's absolutely yeah. true. Um, one thing I, I, I ask uh, a lot of people when I'm giving a, a keynote address or a talk or something, it's like, what do you think are the two most important skills that a programmer should have. And I get all kinds of answers about design and debugging and this and that. And it's like, no, 
The two most important things that you do day in and day out are communicate and learn. Because mm. you're learning all the time. And this, this, this encompasses feedback. You're learning from, you know, obviously the new technology. You're learning from the evolving system as it's being created underneath you. You're learning about your teammates and how to interact with them, how to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. So to me, communication and learning are the absolute two strongest pillars of what we do day in and day out. Excellent. Well, guys, it's a great book, Practices of an Agile Developer Working in the Real World, and uh, good luck with it. And, you know, what can I say? It's, it's great stuff. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay. And we'll uh, see you next week on .NET Rock. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Time for it. Life is hard.